Hi, I'm Janine, and this is Outside the Box. Standing by to join me is Danielle Mate, award-winning musical theater songwriter, playwright, educator, and mental chiropractor, which I'm really curious to dive into. He has recently co-authored a couple books with his father, Dr. Gabor Mate. Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children, as well as The Myth of Normal. And we are speaking right now. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I should clarify that the Hello Again book hasn't been written yet. It's it's oh. next in the queue. Myth of oh, Normal, tra Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture is now out everywhere. Books okay. are sold. Um, we, as soon as, you know, the publicity and the excitement from the release of that book dies down, then we'll get some time to finally write the okay. Hello Again book, which is based on a workshop we have been doing for six years. So it's a little convoluted, but that's okay. the, those are the facts. Well, that's great. And I saw a talk you just did in Rhinebeck, New York, which I, I love yeah. that area. Uh, yeah. How was that? Have you, have you done many events with your father in years past? Yeah. So we've been doing that workshop for longer than we've been co-writing the myth of normal hello again started in 2016 in vancouver so far we've done it in i guess four different locations vancouver toronto new york city and upstate new york um and we're getting interest uh, in doing it in various other locations even other countries and as we write this next book it'll be i think really helpful to us and hopefully helpful to people wherever we go to um, to bring this material to different places, because of course, you know, cultures differ, it's a different vibe in every place, yes. but it does seem to be a pretty universal theme, this tricky, challenging, sometimes very difficult task of updating a relationship that is so rooted in the past. Yes. Um, and how do you possibly have an adult relationship between two people who, when they met, couldn't have been farther apart on the, on the poles of maturity, responsibility, humanness really yes. um and one of them was completely responsible for the other and the other one was being conditioned by the other one's nervous system i mean it's a miracle that we can even coexist exactly and um so i think it, it does seem to be something that no matter where we go or who we talk to when we tell people we're doing this workshop or writing this book they're like oh my god i i need that and I where do i sign up I yeah exactly yeah i feel like it's very timely especially in the past few years where uh adult children have had possibly to move back home or um, they have reconnected with their parents. Maybe they were estranged. There's been a lot of um, reconnection with people you were disconnected from. I think that's true, but I think the opposite may also be true for some people, which is that because we haven't been able to visit each other mm -hmm. and spend Christmas or Thanksgiving or Passover or birthdays together, for some families where they were on the verge of estrangement or things were tenuous at best, or it was stressful for some people. And, you know, people may not want to admit it publicly, but there's been a sense of relief, like, Oh my God, I have an excuse not to have to interact with these people. And they, yeah. you know, you may, you may love them, but, yeah. but the fact is this is a relationship that can be viscerally stressful despite everyone's best intentions. Definitely. But, but either way, I think it's highlighted whether you're brought back into closer contact with people or, you're sort of separated from them. It's going to bring you face to face with what you're carrying from this relationship and what the challenges are. And maybe the way that the quality of this relationship, or at least your relationship to the relationship affects the rest of your life. It's not an isolated, you can't really compartmentalize this one. It does tend to bleed over into every aspect of 
a person's life if there's something incomplete in the relationship, if we're not at ease with it, if we haven't reconciled, whether it's reconciling with each other or even more important, reconciling ourselves with the way it is and the way it has been. And then maybe having the opportunity to say, okay, what else might be possible? Yes. What has it been like doing this with your dad? I mean, were you always close growing up or did you have your moments where you felt very disconnected? Oh, I think we were too close for comfort. We were too close for my comfort. My parents didn't have good sense of interpersonal boundaries or differentiation. They wanted, I'll just speak for myself. I've got two okay. siblings, but you know, as my dad says, no two siblings have the same two parents because of a whole bunch of different factors. Yes. For me, I, I was the firstborn. So I I think I carried a expectations and their mistaken assumptions about it, what it means to be parents, their inability to see me as a separate creature, uh, their inability to see me except through their own filters, which mm-hmm. meant that they, they over approved of certain parts of me and they under approved of other parts of me, which goes against what every child needs. They're both very intense, um, dominant personalities. And I looked up to them both and they commanded a lot of respect, but they sort of, you know, as uh, as Hamlet said, I'm too much in the sun, you know, S-U-N and S-O-N, that there was a kind of, it was just, it was too, the rays of the parental um, uh, celestial body were a little too intense for me. And so a big part of my identity was was forged around them, whether it was pleasing them or resisting them. Mm-hmm. Um and I even said to my dad when I was, I think, 10 years old, I don't know where you end and I begin. 10 years old? Something like that. Yeah. I was I was that kid. I was a very precocious, um, self-expressed, self-aware kid. But even that is laced with me. I mean, you could say, oh, that's such a gift. But even for me, even that's laced with a kind of tragedy because I didn't get to just be a kid. I I I had a I was bright. Mm-hmm. But my my bright little brain had to work way too hard to keep up with a situation that wasn't able to slow down and just meet me at my level. So all of which to answer your question, were we close? Yes, but not, but in many ways, not in ways that were healthy. And then of course there were healthy aspects of closeness, playfulness, you know, a shared love of words. My dad's often said that he's never been able to relate to babies. He was always impatiently waiting for his kids to gain language so he could relate to them. And once I did, there was a lot of joy in storytelling and and verbal play and things like that. Um, Certainly close, but what it, but it didn't make for a stable transition into an adult relationship because as his work elucidates, there's these competing drives in every human being. One is for attachment, which predominates early in our lives, attachment Mm -hmm. to the parenting figures. And then later, what emerges is a deep need for authenticity, becoming ourselves. And those are often in conflict in various ways. And so as I became a grown-up, I found myself increasingly confused by and feeling constrained by my relationship with my parents. What about so a third, work, excuse me, what about a third, yeah. approval from your parents? Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, approval, but also, also distrusting the approval of my parents because mm-hmm. a i always experienced it as conditional it was or i didn't trust it there was something behind it there's something they wanted from me yeah you know or, or at least that was my perception which i think at times was accurate yes. um but what it meant was that i wasn't able to just trust praise or trust 
acknowledgement. I was insatiable. I always needed more and more and more because it never satisfied. Mm-hmm. And then that connects to a kind of distrust of myself and of my own talents and of my own genius and gifts and all that, because it's all tainted with tryhardism, you know, trying to trying to get something from it and for it, as opposed to just letting it, as opposed to channeling the infinite or whatever creativity yes. is supposed to yes. be. So that that relationship is the site of so much um, confusion for people because it is the relationship that taught them what life is like, mm-hmm. literally. That's yeah. the relationship that oriented them to this world. It's like, what is your tour? Welcome to the world. We're going to show you the ropes. Well, the ropes are often very confusing. Yeah. So then again, the act of trying to sort out that relationship and and come into the present but of course you can't make that the all the end all and be all of your life either because a some people's parents aren't going to be up for that and some people just don't want to be in relationship with their parents and moreover the fact is you're not a kid anymore you don't need them in the way you did so in a way you have to sort your own relationship with the relationship out on your own and then you can bring bring that and ask okay proactively as an adult now that I have agency in the matter, since I never had any choice as to whether or not to be born to these people, now I do have a choice and I can be in a relationship with them or not, just like anyone else in the world. And if I'm going to be in a relationship with them, how do I want it to be? Yes. What's it going to look like? What's it going to look like, given that I actually have some say? And mm-hmm. the good news and bad news about that is that now I have some responsibility in the matter too. Right. <laughs> I can't. I can't just sit in my victim place and be like you're making it impossible no but you know the trade-off the trade-off of getting to have a choice is getting to have responsibility and that's a good thing ultimately but there's a big part of us i think that resists that certainly me yes so when did you know you wanted to be a songwriter and a playwright and was that hard because maybe at times you were filled with this negative self-talk oh god yeah um i didn't let myself know it until my late 20s the thing is, it was obvious to anyone who knew me because I had done as much theater and music as I could, but always on the margins of my life. So a perfect example was my undergraduate education at McGill University in Montreal. I had declared my major on my first day there because I was given a full year of scholarship, meaning I could just start second year the first day I got there. And I chose psychology. Now, my dad was not an author writing about psychology at the time. He was just a doctor. But oh. of course, psychology was a big topic in our house. And I was starting to want to really figure myself out. And I was hoping for a humanistic approach to psychology. I didn't get it. I got a very pseudoscientific one, as often happens in many uh, universities. But I didn't quit it. In fact, I did the honors program. And I was kind of miserable. Or at best, I was kind of cynically, grimly cocky because I was excelling at it with one brain cell tied behind my back. Like everyone else was working so hard and I could just do it. But how I kept myself sane, I acted a lot on campus. I was a more active, I was a more active male actor on campus than any of the other guys, including guys who were in the drama program. I was also starting to write songs. I was playing guitar. I was kind of wanting to be an Ani DeFranco style singer songwriter divulging my you know my views on the world and my 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 inner contradictions angst. through song and my angst absolutely mm-hmm. but of course the premise of that was also flawed i thought that studying psychology was going to help me sort myself out and i thought that writing songs about myself and sharing them with people was going to help me sort them out it's not quite how it works you have to do it for some other reason 
Yes. You know, than just wanting, you know, therapy. Yes. Um, so I ended up dropping out of McGill. I, I, I bottomed out at a certain point and I was, again, I was excelling, but I couldn't, the contradictions were just too vast. Mm-hmm. And I had a kind of a mental breakdown and I left wow. university. I ended up finishing the degree back in, in BC, but just kind of perfunctorily. And then I spent my 20s really underachieving, continuing to write songs. I, I recorded an album, which I did nothing with. It stayed in boxes in my parents' basement. How, how symbolic is that? Uh, <laughs> and, and there was a song at the center of the album directed at my parents, you know, demanding my emancipation from them. Right. Good luck with that, right? As if they're the ones who are going to give me my freedom. It's a contradiction in terms. So it was yeah. all just looking back. It's too poetic. It's too obvious. It's a little on the nose. It's like, who wrote this? But I worked a lot of odd jobs. I sold Persian carpets. You know, I delivered a Persian rug to Sarah McLaughlin's house in North Vancouver. Wow. I uh, delivered organic groceries. And then finally, in my late 20s, something got through to me. Um, I did a personal development course that showed me for the first time experientially that a big part of what I was suffering about was completely made up in my head. Not that it didn't, not that I, not that it was like, not that there weren't reasons that I had made that up, Mm -hmm. but that I was suffering inside of a story about myself and a very limited one, a very upsetting one. And that it was actually optional that I could start to again, have choice, which means I'm responsible for the choice now that I know. Mm-hmm. And what turned out to happen, just to bring it full circle to the relationship with the adult relationship with parents, is that for years, my mom had been trying to say to me, Daniel, you're so freaking talented and passionate about the creative arts. What are you doing? And when she would say that, I would automatically hear what's wrong with you. When are you going to shape up and conform and have a profession and join the adult world and stop disappointing me? That's what I wow. heard. That's now, I probably I probably had reasons for hearing it that way, but they were long ago reasons. Mm-hmm. They were reasons reminiscent of a bad day when I was six or something. You know what I'm saying? They mm-hmm. weren't happening in the present moment. And after having done this course, I just had a bit more mental suppleness. And so when she one day we were taking a walk and she said something like that. And that the, the retort, because we'd always have a fight when that started. So the retort was like halfway up my throat like it was about to come out and I stopped myself which I'd never done before I said mom could you please repeat that because I Mm -hmm. don't know if I heard you exactly okay I know what I think I heard but I'm not sure if I heard you and she repeated it she said I can't believe someone of your talent level is satisfied with a life where you where your your artistic loves are out at the margins of your life what would it be like to put it at the center of your life I said oh my god mom that's what you've been saying mom I said, you're just my biggest fan. You're not <laughs> saying there's something wrong that, with Daniel? me. Why, why hadn't you heard that before? Um, because the story I had about myself and about my mother didn't allow me to hear it. We mm-hmm. only hear what our paradigm allows us to hear. Our, the contexts we live inside of are invisible I mean, this was the core teaching of this of this workshop I took, but I've I've found it to be very true. Um, we live inside of invisible contexts and paradigms that we made up 
to survive in a way. We made decisions about life as we go along. And this is very, very congruent with my dad's view of trauma, right? Trauma is not what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us. And the things that happen inside of us are A, a fracturing of ourselves, so a diminishment, a constriction of our emotional repertoire, and B, a narrative framework about ourselves that explains and justifies that. So I'm not this, I'm that. I can't be that way. I have to be this way. The world doesn't want me this way. I have to adjust and adapt and cope. It is what it is. Oh, well. And then we get cynical and resigned. And so there was a dynamic between us where I associated her. And because, of course, my <laughs> my hostile reactions would make her nervous she did. She was walking on eggshells, and when my mom walks on eggshells, she often actually says things that piss me off more because she's not being direct, right? And so then I would use that as more evidence that she's just trying to, that she just doesn't approve of me. And of course, that's all tied to a belief about myself. Right. So we we hear through filters that we're not aware are there, yes. and they and they're born of of trauma or emotional injury, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, but the upshot of that was in the immediate aftermath of realizing that my mom was just really cheerleading for me and that it's cool to have a mother who cheerleads for you. Like, that's like, wow, awesome. It's a total paradigm shift. In the next moment, I was like, of course, I want to go to grad school for music and theater. I just don't know where or how. And I'm scared. And I'm scared to relive my undergrad. I don't want that to happen again. And I'm protecting myself. But cool, I'll look into it. I'll just look into Wait, it. Wait, you said those words to your mom? Almost exactly. Okay. Almost exactly. And if not, I said them to myself in the coming days. Yes. And within five months of that, I had identified that I wanted to move to New York, identified that NYU was the school I wanted to look at, mm -hmm. looked into their graduate programs, decided against music, against theater, but found out that there's a graduate musical theater writing program. And I'd never thought of myself as a musical theater guy, but it was so freaking obvious because I love both music and theater. So at the corner of Music Avenue and Theater Street, I should be able to set up shop and do something kind of cool. Cool. And and I and I had I had found the program, I had applied and I'd been accepted within five months of that conversation. So that's when it really clicked. I didn't okay. I didn't know that I wanted that because mm -hmm. I didn't allow my my paradigm didn't allow me to know it. Yes. Yes. Well, you, there's a hesitation when you're free and open to just say what interests you without judging yourself. I think it'll come out, you know? I think that's right. Yeah. And I was going to say, I, from my own experience, trauma tends to fester cognitively, emotionally, and physically in your body. I'm, I'm losing you again, Jana. I Sorry. said um, trauma tends to fester cognitively, emotionally, and physically in your yes. body. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And so it that's the the totalizing context through which you're perceiving life. So even if you have a, a an intellectual knowledge that, well, probably it's not as bad as I think, in the moment, life is coming at you and it it looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. You might as well be hallucinating. You can't unsee what you're seeing. Right. So the you know, what I do with mental chiropractic is is related to that in that I'm not dealing with the content of what people are struggling with. I'm trying to show them the context 
that they're looking at it through, which is giving them their entire experience. So I, I don't deal with big capital I issues. Someone comes to me with a particular thing that's stuck in their life right now. So I would have been a perfect candidate for mental chiropractic because I was stuck on my career. If I could have admitted that I'm stuck and said, I want to get unstuck, which I was even denying. I was like, no, I'm fine. But if I could have admitted that I was like sick and tired of it, then I could have, if I'd gone to someone like me, yeah. um, said, okay, well, what, what are my assumptions underneath this? What's my working theory? You know, I would have had to first set an intention that goes above and beyond my current reality and then ask, okay, what's in the way. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that. And and that's a way of, if we can't loosen up the physical imprints of trauma, except over the long term, I mean, that takes a lot of work, right? Yes. It takes somatic therapy or just life. But mm-hmm. we can, I think, with enough intention, say, okay, at least let me see it differently. Yes. And if I can see it differently, then maybe my my nervous system, my physical my physical being, will get the memo that maybe it's okay to just like stand down a little bit. Yeah. Like just like stand down red alert and allow something to come in. And then things actually start to shift. So I, I consider it an inside out kind of healing rather than going to the deepest layers of the trauma and and asking why it's there. I just assume everyone's traumatized. I know I am, you know, my my new my new expression is I scream, you scream, we all scream. No, I, I scream, you scream. No, I traumatize I'm traumatized, you're traumatized, we all scream for ice cream. That's it. That's and cute. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know just to lighten the proceedings. But then okay, since I'm all the patients in the world. What do you want to shift right now? Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can. Maybe you don't need to wait for some sweet hereafter of total 100% healing, which doesn't exist anyway, as far as I've seen, yes. to start to to start to shift your point of view. And maybe shifting your point of view in the present will help you start to reconcile with the past, bring the chasm a little a little less wide, you know, mm-hmm. so that so that that you're looking at life through a more empowering and more objective lens. Definitely. Um, in the work you're doing with your with your dad, like I said, I saw the workshop in Rhinebeck. Has it brought you uh, to a greater level of meaning, uh, a closer bond with your dad? Do you feel like he definitely sees you in a different light now? Yeah, and it's mutual. I see him in a different light too. And that's a function of both doing the workshop together, but also very much writing the book, Myth of Normal, mm-hmm. which is his book. Let's be clear. He's okay. the big font, the big font name on the You're title. The little font. <laughs> it's with Daniel Nate. The next book will be both of us, you know. Okay. And if we do if we list our names alphabetically, then I'll go first. Okay. Um, but this one was me really giving him a big assist, you know. Mm-hmm. So that process of um both stepping into my power and stepping out from behind the curtain as his, you know, I used to be his editor, but now I'm his co-author. But at the same time, allowing him to shine and making sure that his message gets out there. I got to see a side of him I'd never seen before. The tortured artist, the insecure creator. I can relate to that. I found him a lot more relatable during this process than I ever had before. He wasn't so distant and, 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 you know, um, defended and sure of himself. So collaborating on that was a very good scaffolding for updating our relationship, stepping into my power. And then, yeah, leading this workshop together, it brings us face to face with each other as anyone who's watched those videos can see. Now you watched the most recent one, which Mm -hmm. is fairly peaceful. Yes. There was a moment later in the weekend where I actually left the room. I was so upset with something he had done. 
and I did it very transparently. I said, I'm going to step off the stage now and let you handle things for a few minutes. I have to go regulate myself. It wouldn't be responsible to be up here and pretending. But okay. I didn't used to have, that's, it is great, but I didn't have the use to, you know, if you go back and watch our first workshop, or at least the first talk we gave in 2016, it's all subtextual, but it's very, very easy for everyone to see. And if you look in the YouTube comments, like 400,000 people have watched it. And some people are like, oh my God, Daniel's such a spoiled brat. He's making it so difficult for his poor dad. His dad's a saint and he's just a jerk. Other people are like, oh my God, I never realized Gabor was such a narcissistic bully. Daniel's doing his best and he's totally mm -hmm. blocking and rejecting. Other people see our both of our humanity at the same time. Everyone looks yes. through their own filter. Yes. But we didn't have an easy time of it. And we didn't, the good thing was we didn't hold ourselves to some standard of perfection before we could get up there and do this because I think we intuited rightly that just the doing of it just the broaching of the conversation the navigating of the territory even if we don't know exactly what the treasure is or where it is would be valuable in and of itself for us and for others because it's the great underexplored topic yes there's I lots agree. of I books was... on yeah lots of books on parenting kids lots of books on grieving dead parents what about all the decades in between right well, I was going to say there's a lot of like mother daughter books and relationships, but to see father son and the intensity, you know, at times between the two of you, what I was going to ask was, was it sounds like when you said you got to see a side of your dad. So were there things like his own backstory or his relationship with his dad that you never knew about that came about? The way he was raised? Yeah, not real. I would say that that's still a point of dissatisfaction for me. Mm -hmm. He doesn't talk enough to my satisfaction about his childhood. Now, he tells the same story over and over again about his infancy. Anyone who's ever watched a Gabor Mate interview or read one of his books knows that he was an infant in wartime Hungary and was given to a Gentile stranger on the street by his Jewish mother because the Nazis were encroaching and he nearly died of dysentery and all this kind of stuff. A very extreme yeah. story of de deprivation and, and, and near death, right? But then he went on to have a whole childhood in Hungary and then a whole, t a whole pubescence in Canada. And I know very little about all of that. And that has been a, oh. a source of frustration for me, both because I think there's more to him than just this. I think there's more to all of us than just what happens to us in the first few months of life. Yes, I think our entire childhoods in, impact us in big ways. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the theoretical pedagogical level, it doesn't quite satisfy me. I want to know more. I think there's, I think, I think we have to reckon with all the decisions we make about ourselves throughout. Now, of course, the earliest part of life is the template. That's when our brain is the most malleable and all that but i just i feel like and I've, when i've asked him about it i find he, that he deflects a bit he just doesn't want to go there he's not as interested in that in himself or others but also just as his son there's nothing he could have said to me at age six that would have helped me have a better infancy but there are things he could have told me at age six that would have helped me deal with bullies better or or feel better about myself at age 12 when i was longing for girls that i that that weren't that weren't returning the the feelings or or yeah. even eight, 18 when i was unsure what to do with myself so that that sense of his experience his guidance being an unknown quantity to me a kind of remote thing that's a um and we all have we all end up with certain kind of nutritional deficits from the parenting we received we don't right. we have to we have to supplant it from elsewhere but yes. that just wasn't that just was not one of his strengths 
Yeah. And so I would love to, and, and, and his relationship with his father, I'd love to know more about. I asked him about it once on stage and uh, he gave a, an honest answer, a, a rather undetailed one, mm-hmm. but I knew, I knew my grandparents as my grandparents. So I know more met, about, you I know more them? about my mom's. Oh yeah. 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 I grew oh. up with them. I, okay. I grew up with all four of my grandparents within five blocks of my high school. Wow. <laughs> until 12th grade when my first grandparent died. And then the rest, you know, my, my grandmother, my mom's mom died in 2017 when okay. I was 42. So oh. okay, you know, I, I, I've been relatively lucky on that front. And I know more about my mom's relationship with her parents than I do about my dad's with his. Mm-hmm. I think my dad took on a very adult role, very young. So I don't know that he even when he looks back on his childhood, thinks of himself much as a child. That's the Maybe sense he I didn't get. feel like he had a childhood. I think that might be very true. Yeah. So he might not, he might just not be able to re- relate on that level. Yes. You said he was given to a Jewish family? No. So he, he was born Jewish. His mother, my grandmother had to give him to a non-Jewish stranger okay. on the street to take to his relative, his Jewish relatives. I see. So you went but to this was a, this was a total stranger. She, she begged her to take my son, please. And then he didn't see his mother for six weeks. Wow. Traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Capital T, capital T traumatic. Yes. Yes. Unbelievable. Mm. What else would you like people to know about you and the work you do? I mean, a lot of the focus on this show outside the box is mental health and well-being. So are there things that you do uh, to take care of your your mental health? I call it mental fitness. Hmm. Well, the mental chiropractic work that I do with other people, I guess, is an expression of what I try to do for myself. Of course, I can't. I can do it only imperfectly with myself because I'm me. Mm-hmm. So these these days, I'm you know, I'm just I've been seeing a therapist for a few years. I'm starting with a new therapist for a more sort of specialized line of inquiry into my actually, you know, my emotional romantic relationships, that's an area of my life where mm-hmm. I don't feel like I've really cracked the code. I was married and divorced and I've had a whole lot of ups and downs in that area. So that's like, that's a com- for me, it's kind of the fr- final frontier. Yeah, I have a new, I have a nutritional coach right now, but she's not just about nutrition. We're looking at my sleep and my relationship to my own well being, which is definitely, you know, yeah. um, I, I take a mood stabilizing medication that I've been on for the last three or four years. It's been extremely helpful to my surprise. I I wouldn't think a medication would really do the trick, but it does turn out there's a class of drugs for people with, you know, sort of unstable mood disorders. Mm -hmm. And I don't take these diagnoses very literally. I, I don't, certainly they don't explain anything, but they do describe the big highs and big lows and never the twain shall meet dynamic of my adult life. Yeah. And somehow this medication seems to work. So those are all things I do. I take a lot of walks and speaking of which that's how I deliver the mental chiropractic work. So it's called take a walk with Daniel. It's at walkwithdaniel.com and people walk where they are. So if you're in Orange County and I'm in Brooklyn, well, you go for a walk where you are. I go for a walk where I am. We put on our headsets, our phones, and we talk. And I've done it with people in Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Australia, France, Ireland, and all over North America and South America. It's really cool. And those conversations are, you know, what I call mental chiropractic. And that is totally a metaphor. And I know that chiropractic itself can be controversial in some circles, but I use it advisedly because I'm trying to make a quick 
powerful, palpable adjustment in your mindset. At With your consent, mm-hmm. you only come to me because you're sick and tired of being stuck on something in particular. And you know on some level, you know that it's not the circumstances that are keeping you stuck. It's your point of view, even yes. if you don't want to admit that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you would really like an alternate perspective. So you at least, you may not have any choice in the circumstances, but if you could just have a choice in your outlook on it, that would be awesome. Yes. That's why people come to me. And when people come to me with, with that level of stakes, that level of motivation, that level of buy-in, that's a great place to start because then I can get on board that intention and I can hold them accountable and I can be very frank and very straight. It is not a gentle conversation. It's often very, um, I wouldn't say it's a wrestling match, but I, but I'm definitely sometimes wrestling, pinning, trying to pin their minds to the ground, their, 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 their old paradigm to the ground and be like, look, you, you're absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're honest. (laughs) I'm, well, I'm, it's more, it's more than just honest. It's, it's, um, blunt. I'm, I'm, it's, well, I'm committed (laughs) Yeah. I'm 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 too committed to 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 dick around. Pardon my expression. You know, okay. it's I I really I I because the person says to me at the beginning of the call, my intention for this walk is peace of mind, or my intention for this walk is freedom. Okay, well, damn it, I want that for you. So we're yes. gonna un- uncover everything that isn't that, everything that yes. blocks that, and people really are great because, and then at that level. They're so tired of it being stuck that they're willing to go, okay, you win. You win. And then of course, and then of course they have to go out into their lives and apply it. And I'm not saying that's a simple thing, but at least I'm giving them a moment, even just a moment of saying, oh, okay, I've got some flexibility here. I'm not totally stuck. Yes. No, I like that. My therapist taught me um, the word boundaries recently, Mm -hmm. which has been incredible because I, I kept letting a lot of people and distractions come into my life when I was trying to focus on something, for example, and I wasn't saying no, or give me a moment or, and it was, it was just too much for me. It was overwhelming. And I didn't know how to say, Hey, I can't right now come back in a couple hours or, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, that's very important. And of course, if my dad was here, which he's not, he would now probably ask you if he could ask you about your childhood to try to get to the bottom of where you learned that saying no isn't cool, where you learned that that you have to just say yes and placate and whatever and what the cost has been in your life. I'm not going to do that, but it, but it's, you know, that that's, there's always a reason why we have these inabilities. You, you weren't born not knowing how to say no, you weren't, Mm -hmm. you weren't born suppressing your needs. Right. So we learn these things to survive along the way. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned too is um, sometimes toxic people, you really have to take a stance and they could be people you're related to that are toxic in your life, but yeah. they can be so unhealthy for you. And that unhealthiness can show up in emotionally, physically, whatever it is. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, I mean, if I was, if we were in a mental chiropractic session, I might take issue with there's no there's nothing wrong with that language and if it helps you identify who's good for me who's not good for me right now great i'm all for it when we that you know some of these terms boundaries toxicity they become part of the pop psychology zeitgeist and they can become a little imprecise and i think i think that the the only danger with that phrase is that it puts 
the toxicity over there with them as if they are a certain kind of person mm -hmm. and it's, they got a badge called toxic person. Right. But it's like gluten isn't toxic. It's toxic right. to a celiac. Yes. And it's toxic to a greater or lesser extent, depending on how their immune system is doing at different times in their life. And a person who is extremely allergic at one time might grow out of that allergy. Yeah. So in other words, there's a way of looking at it where it's just like, get them away from me. There's something wrong with them. I deserve better. And if that's what you need to do to make that boundary, then have at it. Another way of looking at it is I traditionally have not known the difference between what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And right now at my current level of sensitivity, what I need to do is to be really discerning. And there's something about this interaction that causes something in me that leaves a residue that's mm -hmm. just too much for me to deal with. Yes. And I don't, and I currently don't know how to change the dynamic. So I'm going to step away from this dynamic. Now that's a less, that's a less snappy, memeable way of saying it's it. It's such a beautiful way of saying toxic. <laughs> well, it, yeah. And I'm not trying to dress it up. Coated. Well, no, yeah, no, but it's, it, but I'm actually trying to, it, well, maybe no, I'm, it's a maybe, mature, yeah, it's yeah. very well thought maybe out. A, a, a low glycemic sugar coated because it actually places the agency with you. Like mm -hmm. I am choosing not to ingest this right now. It's not good for me right now. It's not your fault. And, and it leaves room for me to alter and whatever. Yeah. And maybe I won't, maybe you're just not, maybe I just don't like you. Like, yeah. like maybe right. I just don't want you, yes. which is fine, which doesn't mean you're toxic. It means yeah. I don't want to be around you. Yes. Period. You don't again, make me feel good. Well, I don't feel good around you. Yeah. Again, you know, yeah, I don't feel good when you're around. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we're, in the past, we're, I would never say that. <laughs> we're kind of splitting hairs, and no, again, I, what, the, whatever works yeah, for you, exactly. I, I'm splitting hairs, yeah. but I'm just trying to demonstrate that these little subtleties in how we language things mm -hmm. create the paradigm that we're looking through, and every paradigm has its own rules and its own limitations. Right. So I'm just kind of giving a demo. But you haven't told me that you're you're stuck with anything, so there's no point in me in nitpicking sure. about your language, but I'm just, yeah. this is what I do with people because if they're stuck and they're used to speaking about something a certain way, then when I point out to them, you know, there's a whole set of hidden assumptions in what you're saying that I don't know if they're serving you. They go, Oh, wow. Yeah. What if I just drop that and just, yeah. And then there's a simpler way of looking at it and, and, and they find themselves more able yes. to, to shift things. Well, it's very peaceful and a healthy way of looking at it. Maybe there's, yeah, maybe there's more peace. Yeah. Maybe there's more peace of mind in it, but whatever mm -hmm. it takes, whatever, whatever it takes. takes. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, well, I'm at walkwithdaniel.com. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who is thinking, hmm, maybe this could be helpful, but I'm not sure. I offer um, free 15 minute consults for anyone who wants to ask me the questions. Um, danielmate.com. If you want to hear any of my musical theater stuff, which is a whole other world. Um, but, but very core to who I am and, uh, you know, the myth of normal is out. It's this, as we speak, it's just popped back onto the New York times bestseller list at number 10, seventh yeah. week on the list, which is really cool. Amazing. Um, so you can check that out. Um, I have a, a, a YouTube channel called lyrics to go where I nerd out about song lyrics, break them down. And I'm hoping to start a podcast with a, uh, 
a, um, a friend of mine, uh, a new friend of mine who people might know actually from pop culture, but I'm not going to say who it is because okay. it's not official yet. Okay. Um, but I'm pretty excited about that. So that would be about lyrics and songs and stuff like that. My dad and I are going to do a hello again podcast, hopefully next year. So, and then, you know, if you want to find out about all of this, the, the big clearinghouse uh, for, for all this information is my social media, Instagram, Daniel B. Mate, M-A-T-E. Okay. Same thing with, same thing with Twitter, Twitter. So. And are there any events coming up where people can tune in virtually or attend live with your dad? Uh, I don't know that the upcoming event in Vancouver at the end of November is going to be live streamed at all. I mean, certainly the weekend won't be because that's an intimate workshop with people. We do a Friday night event. We live streamed the one from Omega, like the one you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but we will put the video on YouTube if we can manage to get it recorded. Okay. Um, And then, yeah, we'll hopefully be announcing new workshops next year in various locations. So, um, these are getting more and more popular. So when we announce it, I recommend if you want to make the trip and and keep in mind this parent adult child stuff, you do not need to come together. You do not need to come with somebody else. You can come by yourself. It's good to know. You can be completely estranged and still benefit from this because whether they're in your life or not, they're in your life. That very true. Very true. And what about you uh, performing? Are you doing any events performing? <laughs> I don't have any concerts coming up. I, I don't do uh, them very often, maybe once a year. I did one earlier this year in New York, but I, I do have um, uh, one of my musicals called The Sweet Hereafter, which is based on a Russell Banks novel, is going to be semi-produced at a, at a student, um, a, an arts festival, uh, a theater festival at an arts college in Philadelphia in right. the spring. Okay. So that's called the Polyphone Festival. And there'll be more details coming out about that in the new year, I'm sure. Great. That's in April. Yeah. Well, congratulations on all you're doing. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. So nice to meet you.